Welcome to the Trailer Island Podcast. We're back for another week and uh, we're doing all sorts of things. Woohoo! Oh, what a banger. Yeah. This is a banger. This is an absolute. This is a good mm. tune. Mm. Matthew, yeah. no, this is good. This is okay, good, I'm glad, I'm glad yeah. that we finally decided that we like it. Just a quick reminder that Matthew wrote, recorded and... And sings this live every single time. That's, that's a needle drop for you right there. That yeah. is. It's very good. We are the Trailer Island Podcast. We compare films and their trailers. Did the film... Uh, wait, did, did the trailer... Wait, did the film... <laughs> Live up to the trailer? No, no. Did the film deliver what the trailer promised? Yeah. yeah. That's our bar, our barstool pitch. Yeah. yeah. You know, what do you do when we compare films and their trailers? Mm-hmm. Did the film deliver what the trailer promised? Done. Great. Well, t- that was an excellent episode. Thanks, everyone. Thank you very much. We've yeah. uh, done a good review now. That's, and, that's uh, how to market your podcast, 101. That's Yes. Uh, I read a book on it. Uh, you did. You, I, I saw you reading it. Yes. If only I could read. No, I can. Um, Do you think the filmmakers of this particular film needed to read a book on planning your franchise? Uh, yes. Funnily enough, I yeah. do think. Yeah, they could have been a little bit more planning and probably a little bit more... Um, let's say quality. Sometimes. Oh. All right. Well, we're going to get another fiery, yeah. fiery one today. Yes. Yes. <laughs> of course. Well, we're talking uh, about a film that's part of a franchise. Yeah. Uh, that developed a franchise over the years mm. and an and influence in sci-fi. Oh yeah. Certainly. Yeah. So look, let's just get stuck straight into the trailer and um, let's just have a. You know, this film doesn't even need. No, I don't think name. it does. No. Well, this isn't the film that we were going to be doing, is it? You're playing a trick on me. <laughs> what are we listening to? <laughs> oh, I'm waiting for you to... You'll get there. It is... Re- oh, it's Alien. Is it Alien? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it is. Are we doing Alien? We're doing Alien. I thought we were doing the other one. <laughs> Oh, I'm excited. Hooray. Look at his little face. Why oh, is such a cute little face? Oh. Well, there are no words in this trailer. No, there so. aren't any words. It's a great trailer, though. Just think of all the body horror. <laughs> How exciting. <laughs> it's been a lot of Ridley Scott the last couple of weeks, hasn't it? <laughs> I didn't think about that, did I? <laughs> That's a haunting soundtrack. They actually use the same sound effect in the Prometheus trailer. Yeah. A bit of a little throwback. In space, no one can hear you scream. This what a great the, tagline. This is one of those films where I need to ask you, Matt. Yes. Is that the original trailer? My understanding is that is the original trailer, mm. yes. So we did leave the mics up <laughs> during that, which we've never done before because... What did we promise to do, Alex? Uh, the last Skywalker. Uh, was Rise it? of Skywalker. Rise which is why Skywalker. I was making so many derogatory comments at the beginning mm. of the episodes. 
Uh, everything I said was technically true. Yeah, no, I see what you're doing now. I wondered why you were looking at me weirdly. <laughs> now, <laughs> now, we decided to do this because Matthew, as we know, is a huge Alien mm-hmm. fan. And Ridley Scott fan. And a Ridley Scott fan. And we seem to be smashing the Ridley Scott as of late. But that's okay. Yeah. He's deserved um, it. I think he's worked for he's it. He's visible this year. Because this is going to be a bit of a challenge for you because you're having to think about this on the fly now. You're not prepared for this in any you way. Are misun- you are underestimating how well I know this film. I, and that, and I'm that not. Ought- <laughs> I'm not. From our Jurassic Park episode, I'm very sure yeah. that you could probably quote this movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, and... What about the bonus situation? We should discuss the bonus situation. <laughs> <laughs> what have we done? We've started already. <laughs> We've unleashed the beast. <laughs> so, we're doing Alien. Mm-hmm. What a classic. And, and 1979. I want to say. This is after A New Hope. This is a Ridley Scott film. We, I'm not sure if we mentioned that yet. It's only his second feature film. Oh, okay. After, after a film called... I nearly said The, the Last Jewel? Jewel. That's his... The the duelists, the duelists, which is about two French soldiers who have a bit of a grudge with one another, and basically they get obsessed with this vendetta, this imagined slight against one another, and spend their whole lives running into each other and trying to kill the other in a in a you know a sword duel. So if Ridley Scott carks it in the next year or two and doesn't make another thing, mm. his bookend. Uh, almost, because there is there is House of Gucci that comes out mm. oh, next okay. month. Yeah. All right, never mind. Here but, um, I was trying to be poetic. And... No, no, I, I appreciate what you're trying to do, but Ridley's Ridley's too quick for you. He mm. just can't be stopped mm. even at 84. That's okay. He's 84. Yeah. Wow. So basically, Ridley was stuck making ads in the UK, trying basically waiting for a script to come to him. And it got to the point where he was like, I'm never going to... He's, he's, I think he was like late 30s at this point. So in terms of like... Back then, like you think of your Spielbergs, who was very young when he first started directing films, he was getting on a bit already, I suppose. And so he decided, you know, I'm just gonna have to make it make it up as I go along. So he did the 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 duelists. The last duel is so ingrained in my brain at the moment. As a kind of way of he could go to then studios and say, I want to direct your film, here's what I can do. So he made the last duelist. That was a, a success for the budget that it was at the time. And then he heard about this film called Alien, which he chased, and he was something like the fifth director who was attached to make it or something like that. Like, he wasn't first choice. And he... I have to paraphrase him because I can't remember the exact quote, but he read the script and he knew that he could do something with it because of A New Hope where basically he said, let's do a a space film, but let's make them all truck drivers. Mm -hmm. They're all just on a towing vehicle. And that was the switch. That's what made it stand out and feel real and grounded. And then you add horror to that and you've got just a winning formula. This is famous for not really seeing what is probably the main character until the very end of the film. Mm. Or even so. establishing a main character who's about halfway through the film. Because yeah. you don't really get a focus on, on Ripley until about no. maybe an hour's and, in. And interestingly enough, um, Ripley was actually written to be a, a, a male character. And then without changing any dialogue, just cast Sigourney Weaver, the great Sigourney Weaver. And what an incredible female role model that character turned out to be. Steve, what's the plot of this film? Uh, (laughs) Uh, Well, yeah, space truckers uh, are towing something back to Earth. They are currently in... What are uh, they towing? They are towing (laughs) helium... I I just assume you don't know. It's it's either helium gas or tritium gas. It's one or the other. I think it's tritium gas. From where to where? I think it's tritium. They are going back to Earth, is my understanding. Mm. They're on their way back to Earth. They've completed a job from the frontier. 
the frontier being yeah. where, where out, out of space, out where of space. humanity is reached. Yeah, because um, Wayland Yutani, the com- well, they're not Wayland Yutani <laughs> at the point of this film. They're just Wayland uh, Company, I think. Um, Wayland Yutani, they become in <laughs> Aliens, where there's there's an off-screen merger of companies, and and that's that's James Cameron's film. We'll get to that. Never, probably. Matt's but, um, currently, like, <laughs> perpetually just dragging glasses up his nose frame at the moment. He's like, actually. Anyway, the... <laughs> Sorry. The, no, the, these truck drivers, they, they, it's, it's a commission job from, from Wayland Company to, to get this, this stuff back to work. It's very valuable. Do you and- remember when I was explaining the plot? That was so long ago. You, you threw- yeah. Mm. yeah. Do you want to take back over? I mean, it'll be more succinct, I think. But yeah, you go on then. You're going to get bogged down in the law. We'll, oh, the law that we'll, this franchise we'll eventually get spawned. to Alien v Predator. I know. I'm, oh. I'm kind of, I kind of enjoy Matthew's rambling. Fun fact: This is actually. <laughs> <laughs> wait, 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 wait! Is it a fun fact? Am I, I, fun? I think it's a fun fact. Okay. It's been a while since I've had a fun fact. Uh, I think uh, it's been confirmed that this movie takes place in the same universe as Blade Runner. That uh, that is a fun fact. That is a fun fact. It's also legit. Ridley Scott swears by it. That's a that's a repeat that. fact though, because yeah, we've had that, that fact on the podcast. before. Probably said that on the Blade Runner we, we episode. Did, yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, so okay, so they are coming back from the frontier. They're mining this. It's particularly important gas. I take yeah. it that they're bringing yeah. back lots of it. And then what? They're in cryo sleep and they get woken up mm-hmm. by the ship's computer. And the ship's computer's got a, a distress signal. It's picked up a distress signal. Yeah. And like, of unknown origin. Of non- unknown origin. And oh, yeah. they stop by a planet and Mother, the computer's, uh, the ship's computer, wants them to check it out. Yeah, which is where we get to the bonus situation. Because if they don't go down to check it out, because they don't want to because they're scared, they won't get paid. So money and corporate greed is a massive theme throughout this entire franchise. So why won't they get paid if they go... Because it's if, if you f- see evidence of intelligent life... You have to go and sit and check it out for the benefit of all humanity and science. Oh, uh, so they're they're somehow receiving an emergency signal that they that seems intelligent. They don't know what it is or if it's human or whatever, but it seems intelligent. And it's it's company policy; it's in their contract that they have to investigate it. So Otherwise, they won't, they will forfeit their shares. So the horror okay. stakes aren't contrived yet. Okay, well, this film doesn't get scary until about forty minutes, almost an hour in. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just kind of them just going... I mean, it's pretty creepy, even by today's standards, even when they're on the planet and going through this... They land on the planet. I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm taking over from Steve once again. They land on the planet, and they go and they find a derelict spacecraft of... It's not human, Mm -hmm. and and it's all creepy looking. And then they go in, don't they, Steve? I'm going to throw it back to you now. They do, and uh, I don't want to get too into the... They find some eggs. They do find some eggs. Um, um, John Hurt finds an egg and probably stands a little too close (laughs) to the egg, and the egg opens up, and next thing we know, John Hurt is being carted back to the ship, Mm. unconscious and paralysed. With something on his face. Mm -hmm. Yeah, something Mm -hmm. wrapped around his face, a spider-looking flesh thing. And then shenanigans ensue. Oh, yes. I suppose we, we should really get to it possibly one of the most famous film monsters of all time mm-hmm. and also probably one of the most famous scenes in in horror cinema history where suddenly john hurt's character um kane he wakes up mm-hmm. and the spider things off his face and is in his dead and they go great all right cool he seems fine this will we'll freeze this thing and take that back to do 
experience. Let's have a meal, go to sleep, and we'll wake up when we're at Earth. And they're all sitting around the table there. They're all eating some noodles and whatever, what have you. And um, John Hurt starts coughing a little bit, and uh, and and everyone's going, "Well, what's what's wrong with what's wrong with Kane? He's coughing. Is he choking?" And they think he's. The actors did not know that this was going to happen. This is they, so really Scott's known for shooting with multiple cameras. So he set up a multicam setup. Obviously, a few members on the crew and John Hurt obviously knew what was going to happen, but the main actors did not know that basically he was going to cough, keel over, and his chest was going to burst open and blood was going to go everywhere and this thing was going to come out of him. And so there are some really cool takes in there, especially if you watch the director's commentary. So either Ridley Scott or one of the actresses points them out where there's a, there's a shot of, um, oh, what's her name? I always forget her name, the really paranoid one. Um, and Lambert, thank you, where she gets a dollop of blood on her face and you, she just like stops acting, goes, oh God, what is this? It's disgusting. And that's just her breaking character because she had no idea that it was going to happen. And she's like, I'm covered in this fake blood now. It's great. It's a great sequence. And and the xenomorph is born, the big alien. It's a little chest burster thing and it scuttles off and the rest is history. It turns into a big monster and kills them all. Grows very quickly. It does yes. grow very quickly. That's uh, and it sheds its skin, and and it's honestly the most terrifying creature you could ever think of. When I watched this as a kid, I was terrified of it. So I want to point out something that I feel like as terrifying, especially on the second watch through. So there's a character called Ash, mm, played by um, the great Ian Holm, uh, played by the great Ian Holm, who who is revealed to be a, a, an android. Yes, uh, in a very sort of violent scene, and, that, and that's quite a startling bit of the movie. Mm. And I really, really enjoy going back and rewatching for a second time, and and watching um, Ian Holm's character throughout the whole thing because he's you know, very well played. He, he comes off as like this sort of. Uh, real pragmatic sort of character for the first half of the movie, but if you go rewatch that with the benefit of hindsight, you now get to see that the the, the Ash is this cold, calculating android who's only mm. focused on trying to get the alien back to Earth to study. That's right, and as there's that famous line which is um, "crew expendable," mm-hmm. and which is the penny drop moment for Sigourney Weaver's character, which is "oh, we're." We're on our own. They don't care about us. They want the creature. And again, that's, you know, it goes back into corporate greed as well a little bit. We were talking about um, The Green Knight last week and about hitting the audience over the head with the theme. Ridley Scott's clearly kind of a, an advocate for, for, for women and feminism, I would mm-hmm. suggest, because ultimately this film is about rape, mm-hmm. which is not something you think of. But when you think about the, the designs for the creatures and all the things that happen, it's it's it's... Not to get too in detail because it's pretty horrendous, but that's what the movie is about. And that's why it worked so well that they changed Ripley to become a female character. Mm-hmm. And so even in what is even called by Ridley Scott a B-grade horror film, you're still able to tell a story and have thematic statements and do that with subtlety, unlike yeah. The Green Knight. Yeah. And, and really pull it off in a way where unless sometimes you don't even notice it unless it's pointed out to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's, I think, was really the genius of, of Alien is, yes, there's the very clear and present horror of just this alien creature but it's also tapping into the horror that humans are capable in terms of corporate greed sexual violence all these horrible things and that's why it's such a horrifying film is it touches on all those things mm. and it's just it's just genius filmmaking do you think that's a thing that you come across when you watch it for the first time that you're I aware don't think of? so I mean I it's hard for me because I watch this because mum and dad, well, I mean, we were old enough, but they were like, you, you'll love this film. We've always been talking about the alien films. So so as a kid, it's just a horror film. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, especially after going to film school, watching Ridley Scott's other works, again, films like Filmer and Louise, and obviously now recently The Last Jewel, 
I think it's a theme that he touches on quite a bit because it's well, if, if done well, it's it's it can raise awareness and also in case of this film, it's sort of subject subjecting a lot of the male characters to that in a kind of flip of the theme if that makes sense i'm not an expert on this but do i am i, am I kind of making yeah, that clear yeah, well it's also built in the design because hr yeah. geiger had to sort of design the alien to look very phallic se- you're very sexual just like yeah. the spaceship and then even just the chest burster scene in itself is quite phallic mm-hmm. but, but that's what the film's about and that's why a lot of people complain about not so much jim cameron's sequel aliens because that is a great sort of film about someone suffering from PTSD overcoming their Mm -hmm. PTSD, which is a terrific film. But the the subsequent Alien films, excluding Ridley's prequels, which are doing their own thing, lost what the theme was. And it just became a B-grade horror film. So no, 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 these films were smarter than that initially. They they had a lot, they were more cerebral. Which is why I like when he went to do Prometheus and then Covenant following that. It went back to the weighty Mm -hmm. themes, especially around David and the themes of creation and that Mm -hmm. kind of thing. And different movies, but it's good. Like he, yeah. Ridley Scott's very good at taking a very simple story but applying heavy and interesting themes to them. Mm-hmm. And that's why this film, for his second film, he did a damn good job of it because he wouldn't have had much pull in Hollywood at that time to be able to have his way, I would imagine. So he's pulled it off. You're, you're looking at me in stun silence. No, no, it's very, <laughs> it's very insightful. I was just going to say, going back and re-watching the, it for this podcast, I, I was drawn to the first hour of this film and and trying to think back as to what an audience might be feeling in 1979 if they had not seen the trailer to this film and known this <laughs> is a horror because the first hour of this film is 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 all set up. Yeah, it's, no, it it's, is. It's, it's very it's, slow setup. It's Jaws. You know, you don't see any any villain mm. until halfway through. It's, yeah, it's the thing. You don't see a villain until halfway through. The only film that's done the opposite of that, just on a side note, successfully, is The Shining. Because you see Jack Nicholson's character the whole way through the movie mm-hmm. and yet he's still terrifying. But if, but you are right. It, it's that clever trick of waiting to, to yeah. reveal your main monster, which is just great. Because the, the first hour is is, is so jam-packed <clears throat> full of uh, a few different things. It's obviously a sci-fi film, but, you know, you get characters talking about getting, like, their cuts. So you're starting to think, is this sort of like a... Uh, an adventure film? Are they tr- going to try and earn what they? Yeah. And then you get to the planet, and and uh, I feel like this is sort of one of the only instances you get to hear this big orchestral score, and you're thinking, okay, we're definitely getting into this space adventure here. Yeah. Uh, and then it turns it on on its head. It becomes this this very very well thought out calculated horror film. It, it and it is. It's so well paced and. It's hard to say in hindsight who I thought was going to make it through to the end of this movie, but I think it's fair to say, unless you obviously know who Sigourney Weaver is and and what a huge star she became, it's fair to say that if you knew none of that, Mm -hmm. you don't know which character is going to make it through, which is is always key to these kind of survival horror films. There's nothing worse than a horror film where you go, well, that guy's not going to make it, that guy's not going to make it, you know, that that predictability. I think this film has removed that. And literally anyone could have made it through. Because a lot of the film also kind of skews to be that Captain Dallas is the main yeah, character, yeah. especially in that first section. And he ends up dying for three quarters of the way through, He's the I think. Third victim. He's this. the third victim. And you're like, oh, well, he was he was the guy I was mm-hmm. rooting for. And that's when Sigourney Weaver, Ellen Ripley, starts to come to the forefront a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And you start to realize that she's the real leader. Because Dallas doesn't really make that many decisions throughout the film. He's very kind of like, oh, just, you know, let Ash do what he wants to do. It's not my problem, you know, that yeah. kind of thing. And when you do sort of rewatch that first hour and, and concentrate on Ash, you see what a 
what an influence he is on, yeah. on Dallas the entire way through. Um, Ian, Ian Holm is a, is a ter- obviously a terrific, the late Ian Holm, that is, is mm-hmm. a terrific actor. But I think this is, possi- strangely enough, despite how big the film is, I think he gets forgotten that he's in this film, yeah. which is bizarre because it's one of his more scary roles. He's very, so. he's very good at comedy as well, obviously. And he's well, probably his scariest role is when he yeah. did that weird thing in, in the uh, Fellowship in of the <laughs> Ring. <laughs> I'd very much like to hold it again. Ah! Yeah. <laughs> Uh, in this trailer, obviously we don't get any spoken words or anything like that. In the subsequent trailers where they do like 40th anniversary edition and they do very modern versions of the trailer, mm. I'd say at the time this is probably quite a revolutionary, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but a, a, a very different way of presenting a trailer. I would have thought so. I- in, in this trailer, we see all, of the main char- all the characters in the moments before they die. That's I hadn't realised that. That's a really good point. Mm. Very good point. That's what you see. So you do see almost the conclusion of all characters. It's a but very quick cut as well. It's, the it's the oh, cutting yes. in this trailer. For yeah. 1979, the cutting in that trailer is mm. very advanced mm. considering how quick. the like, I suppose the conventional wisdom at the time for trailers back then would have been let's sell the movie. Mm. Like we want to see what we're going to be looking at. But yeah, this is the quick cuts. It's got that haunting siren sound yeah. going throughout the whole thing, which is absolutely just... And it looked like... Like everyone yeah. was in trouble, so when you go see the film, you don't know who's going to make it through, that, if anyone right. at all. Was Sigourney a name at this stage? No, I, be- I, oh, I think she may have done maybe something before this. I feel like this was one of her very okay. first films. I feel like people might have known Ian Holm or John Hurt by this stage. I, John Hurt, definitely. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and I think um, whoever plays Parker, I forget the actor's name, he was actually quite a well-known actor at was the time. Is that the time. guy with the, with the cap? No, the guy with the bandana, the other one, his friend. Oh, right, right. Yeah. So there are some sort of well-known names for the time in there, but Sigourney Weaver definitely wasn't one of them. Now, we we really should talk about the production design because this film is possibly one of the most beautifully shot horror films I think that's ever been Mm. made, just in terms of the lighting. And it's hard to make just lighting chaos, like flashing lights, strobes look good. Mm. But this film looks beautiful even when it's got smoke and lights going off you still it still looks really nice if that makes sense i don't know what do you guys think think on the way the film looks uh, i don't think our opinions really matter at this point <laughs> Just, <laughs> if i was going to be picky there, there are shots of the nostromo where i go this this probably nostromo uh, being the the spaceship they're flying on okay um i, I have a nostromo like, hat at home i believe you <laughs> <laughs> i feel like it could have been lit a little bit more for sure they try to make a silhouette the best they can against the deep space, and yeah. they, and you do see a little bit of a silhouette, but uh, sometimes it just needs to like, there needs to be like brightness behind it or something. Just, sure, just to, yeah, that's fair. Um, I think if I was being picky, that's that's all I'd sort of. Yeah, but in terms of the stuff actually shot within inside the Nostromo, we get that nice claustrophobic feel. Mm-hmm. This is one of the first films that really gave people a fear of negative space in shots. Mm-hmm. So yeah. someone could be looking up. Sh- again, this is an audio <laughs> medium, but someone could be looking sort of. Let's. I have to try and. Am I telling it to me or to you guys? Someone could be <laughs> bottom bottom right of frame, looking out of frame, and. I think at the time, audience were trained to think, well, what he's looking up, that's where the mm-hmm. thing's going to be. But then something would be behind them in the opposite end of the of the frame. and it came, and then, But then you get a few of those and then it starts doing it when nothing happens. Mm-hmm. And so you're always on edge going, but it's doing that framing again. Is there going to be something there? And then nothing happens. Yeah. And it just keeps you on edge and it tricks you. 
this even happened on the shooting. There was there's a wonderful. It's quite famous now as being, I suppose, the blueprint of what an alien film should look like in the franchise, where Ellen Ripley has engaged the self destruct. She's pelting it down this corridor with there's smoke. The sirens are going off. There's lights. And Ridley Scott said to her, okay, you're going to come down this corridor and something's going to jump out at you around here. I won't tell you exactly where, but it's going to jump out at you. And she's like, okay, cool. Yep, no worries. And you just react and run past it. So she did the whole take and there was nothing there. Mm. But she was terrified the longer the take went on that something was going to jump out and it never did. And that's just the kind of trickery that the film then uses on its audience to just terrify them. Mm -hmm. It's just so good. I think you do bring up a good point about negative space that I did pick up on. Her. Yeah. There's a lot of uh, very, very, very wide shots. Yes. Where you as a viewer really need to be at the screen sort of trying to pick out what's going on. Like there's a couple of establishing shots of the uh, the, the alien ship they're encountering. Massive wide shots to get a real perspective of the scale. But then you have to look down to the bottom of the frame and you can see two tiny little lights sort of barely moving toward the ship and you're going, okay, so that's where the crew are. They're trying to get toward yeah, the ship. that's right. And those shots are, are long enough and are held long enough that you can spend that time sort of looking for it as well. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, like talking of scale as well, I, I think because really Scott has, he'll always say at heart he's a production designer and he's got a very good visual eye. Mm. There's a shot where they first leave the Nostroma, they come down on this little landing pad that like descends and they get off of that it's going like the the Nostroma's not looking big enough this is this is wrong and so their solution was not to change the set but instead of using adults in the spacesuits they use children and so suddenly everything's twice as large Mm -hmm. because you don't see the actors faces in those spacesuits and so it's just got these little kids in scale appropriate spacesuits and it suddenly made the Nostromo look so much bigger it's like yep that fixed it but it's just that attention to detail he he again this is a B movie the, the 20th Century Fox were probably not they didn't know they had a hit on their hands. I was like, yeah, just make a movie and it's a horror movie and just get it out. But Ridley was still trying to take the time to make sure it visually looked and felt right. And mm. I think that still holds up to this day, more or less. Like you say, some of those space shots of the Nostromo when it's clearly a model don't really look that good. But well, that's, that's, that's a picky one. Yeah, I mean, it, it is 1970. I mean, even A New Hope doesn't really look that good anymore, does it, really? I mean, no. Well, could, could you say the same thing for negative sound as well? So. Silence. Oh, yes. So silence. The use of silence at the beginning is terrifying. Because, <laughs> it, it, correct me if I'm wrong, it's been a while since I've seen it, but is it in the space shots you don't actually hear anything? Is that correct? There or, are moments of that, yes. You know, which space doesn't carry sound. Well, so, it's like the whole tagline, which, which apparently terrified people even without seeing the film in space, no one can hear you scream. Yeah. Just the concept of that was... T- and terrifying. I, I, I do like that it allows scenes to be quiet. Mm-hmm. Like there's not music playing under yeah. you know, muted conversation. It's like yeah. a clicking of machine going on in the background. Mm. Nothing um, nothing more than that. And, and, and the soundtrack following on from that, I mean, apart from this big orchestral score of the, of the, the shuttle leaving the Stromo <laughs> going down to the alien planet, the, the the score is very very minimal. It I mean, is. It's yeah. there. It's it's there. It's creating an atmosphere, but it's very minimal. It's, it's almost Hans Zimmer before Hans Zimmer was a thing. A lot of it's just a drone that you don't like with some subtle percussion that you don't really pick up on. It's just there to add to the atmosphere. It's, it's just sound design more than music. Oh, I just realised I want a, an Atticus, a, a Trent Reznor, an Atticus Ross alien <laughs> soundtrack at some stage. Actually, oh. that's a really really good idea. Oh, to be honest, you could probably just grab any of their soundtracks and put it on any <laughs> yeah. film, and it wouldn't matter because they all sound pretty similar <laughs> after a while. <laughs> well, you're not wrong. Well, what I do like is the lore that this 
gave birth to, for a lack yeah. of a better term. There's actually a D&D skin of this game that's based on the lore. It's funny, the lore for this franchise is somehow more succinct than the Star Wars lore, which I do find quite hilarious, to be honest. There's more cohesion in there, um, except with the AVP stuff, which is not which is not <laughs> canon. Alien versus Predator. Alien versus You're... Predator, which both James Cameron and Ridley Scott have very strongly disowned. Um, just because it's a stupid idea. Yeah, the, no, you're right. The law, like with the Wayland Jutani backstory, there are whole books, and I have a couple of them that literally have made up an entire company's worth of backstory that's never mentioned in the film, but it's there and it's like documented year by year. Mm. And mm. it's considered canon? And it's all considered canon. It's all, this is all stuff that's been like published by 20th Century Fox or whatever subdivision do the books and that kind of thing. And, and, and it's all canon. And it's all more or less as you would. I mean, there are always going to be little plot holes. It's not perfect, but it's pretty strong. Yeah, especially when you bring in the Prometheus and then the Covenant mm-hmm. movies. Even mm-hmm. they, they only strengthen the law, but they also fit into what was already existing. And that's just—it's just like a sort of what's the word? Um, fant- it's like um, the Silmarillion. It kind of reminds mm-hmm. me. It's got just that completely unnecessary, but well thought of and just lovely to delve into if you really want to backstory and law that just fits. It just fits. It's nice. It's like poetry. It's like poetry. It rhymes. <laughs> but, it, uh, yeah, I think this film was absolutely groundbreaking in terms of some of the things it did. Without this film, we wouldn't have had Blade Runner and the way that Blade Runner looks, that original Blade Runner film, which is just obviously gorgeous. But that leans a lot into some of the stuff that Ridley's playing with in this movie. And let's, let's make no qualms about it. He was still a young director at this point. This was only his second film. This one sort of feels like he was... He watched A New Hope in 77 and was like, I want to do the opposite of this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's right. That's right. There's definitely a lot of Star Wars in the set design. It's just hidden by all the horror, really. Mm. Mm. <laughs> but I would love to think that you mentioned earlier um, if someone sat down to watch this without watching the trailer. Because Jerry Goldsmith, who did the soundtrack, also does the Star Trek soundtracks at the time. So I'd love a Star Trek fan to sit down and go, oh, space adventure, here we go, and then just get absolutely... It's Jerry's Goldsmith, guys. Yeah. What is... It? Oh, this is very... Oh, ethereal. they're touching down on a planet. This is very much like Star Trek. They're going to do some exploring and... Oh, God, turn it off! <laughs> I wonder if you could watch it now for the first time and appreciate it for what it is. I, I, I hope so. I think... I think what will will young audiences will struggle with, and this isn't me trying to sound like an old man having to go at young people, is just the pacing, because it's very deliberately slow at the beginning. Mm. Again, it's, it takes like an hour for anything significant to happen, but that's deliberate. The film works because of that time that's spent at the beginning. There almost needs to be a rule of thumb for people of this generation watching these movies, just to be, hey guys, prepare for an hour of setup. Yeah, um, you know? I think there also needs to be a bit of acknowledgement sometimes. I, what what I hate, and I suppose maybe it's just me as a film lover that maybe I'm a bit bigoted, but it's the whole, do you want to watch this? No, it's an old movie. Well, don't watch it through a lens. like You don't watch an Alfred Hitchcock film through the lens of someone who's just went gone, gone to see Blade Runner 2. They're going to look very different. You watch it through the lens of this is an older film, however, it's still going to... Tra- that story visually should still translate to today. It's just I'm going to notice that the cameras are often very locked off or there's a lot of dollying, that kind of thing. It's a slightly different language, different techniques. I think there needs to be an understanding of that. I certainly have never had an issue watching an older film because I go, Bridge on the River Kwai is not going to look like Hacksaw Ridge. It just isn't. Mm-hmm. Set in the same period of history, made 
in very different times, they're going to tell the story differently, but that doesn't mean they're any less valid. And if you are a young person watching this movie, uh, just know that I am there with you when you <laughs> see a, a, a wider shot of the alien and you think, yes, it looks silly. Because the guy in the costume is not the CGI monster we're all used to. No, it's He's a man going in a to suit. move around like a mannequin a little bit. <laughs> and then when Dallas gets killed, he is going to tr- jump out with his arms out like that. I still love that. Because, I think it's amusing. Because it's still a jump scare, but then it's followed by a laugh. Yeah. And I was like, I don't, they, obviously, like <laughs> they clearly didn't intend that. Yeah. But I, it's just for me, like, oh, oh, oh it's kind of funny. <laughs> Uh, he just wants a hug. He just wants a hug. He just wants a hug. Just the xenomorph is misunderstood. Him sliding through a room, though, looking, uh, yeah, that's just a little bit. But uh, again, like in '79, probably yeah. still the scariest thing someone had ever seen. Yeah, you know, I mean, same as that that lightsaber fight between Obi Wan Kenobi and Darth Vader in A New Hope today. Let's be honest, looks ridiculous. Mm-hmm. But at the time, it was like, wow, look at the laser swords, and oh, Darth Vader's scary. Like, it comes with the territory of the yeah. time. Like, there are definitely things, and I, I watch this film pretty regularly, as people probably would have guessed from my reaction no. to the <laughs> surprise of, of no. um, having done this. But uh, I still think the film ages has aged quite well. And I, the, some of that's yeah. aided by a very, yeah. very good remaster. Like, they've cleaned up a lot of the grain, and yeah. it does look pretty, especially if you... I think it's on Disney+, Plus actually, in 4K, and mm-hmm. it looks amazing. Like it, Though, I think those are probably my qualms. Like, uh, if I had not seen this in, in high def, sort of remastered, my my biggest qualm would be uh, a lot of those darker shots, you know, mm. stuff on, on the actual alien planet. Yeah. Really hard to distinguish. But when you watch this remaster, you get to see the full scope of the... The, the alien in the chair. You get to see the yes, eggs. You the get space to see jockey. the mist. You get to see John Hurt's face most of the time. Yeah. Um, that's I mean, like, when I first watched this movie, it was really, really hard to to discern John Hurt's face for some reason. Oh, I think the first time I saw this was on a 4x3 v- pan and scan VHS, mm. which I have to admit, looking back, must have looked horrendous. Yeah. Like, this is not this is a very widescreen movie. To have a four by three pan and scan is now you wouldn't imagine ever doing that, but obviously back in the back in the day it was common practice. Quickly describe what a pan and scan is. So pan and oh, quickly. Yes. Um, so you've got a widescreen image. Uh, you have an T- old TVs at the moment T- are sixteen by nine. Yeah. Widescreen. TVs back back in the day were four by three, so a square. For those who don't know what four by three is, and as a result, if you took a widescreen movie and tried to put it in your four by three image and didn't want to have black lines at the top and bottom, you'd have to do a pan and scan where you literally go through every shot and move the frame so that everything's more centered or at least within that four by three thing. As a result, you're chopping bits off the end of the end of the image. The classic example as well is The Shining because The Shining was stuck in 4x3 well into the DVD years until the Blu-ray came out and it was finally in widescreen again. But pan and scan, back in the day, you kind of got away with it. It's a horrendous thing to do. Never do it. You're cropping the video. You're losing vision. Don't do it. How old was Ripley in this film? Ripley? Mm. I, you know, I don't know. Oh, God. What? I've never really guessed at her age. I've always assumed sort of late 20s. It's disappointing. Do you? What, how old is she? Oh, I just, I just I thought you would know this. I'm gonna look it up. Wouldn't she just be whatever Sigourney's age probably was? Uh, that's the, yeah, that's kind of what which I. Which is probably mid twenties, mid mm-hmm. late twenties. That's kind of what I thought. I mean, if he's looking at at, at commerce records for Waylon Utani, <laughs> Ellen Ripley. <laughs> I, I hate to see age. what the uh, predicted suggestions based on Matthew's search history oi, are. <laughs> Ellen um, Ripley. First film. Uh, Tentacle. Uh, t- <laughs> <laughs> Ellen, 
Alan Ripley. That's the longest wheeze you've ever got. You've ever got. No, that was him. Alan <laughs> uh, Ripley uh, um, panty. Jesus. Alan uh, <laughs> Ripley, Ripley Jesus. Emily, Emily, Alan Ripley singlet. Uh, there, there is a fan alien site that I'm on here. It's called Xenopedia. Okay. <laughs> Which is not a great... That sounds like something you get charged with at the police station. <laughs> um, it's actually not going to say... I, she's must be, she must be late 20s, I reckon. Anyway. I can tell you how old her daughter is when she dies in the second film. She's 87. This is why I thought he might know. Yeah, I let you down. I'm sorry. Okay. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> uh, do, do we wrap now, or do I we let Matt? Do we just do yeah. Steve? Do you and I just go get a coffee and leave Matt recording for a bit? I, I think I know what he's watching. Tonight. When, when do we? Oh, you're yes. <laughs> um, so we've just discussed the '79 um, theatrical cut. Can we talk about the 2001 director's cut now, which had Quickly. extra scenes? So there's a great extra scene that they've added in the director's cut, which that was, was shot, shot in '79. It, it was shot in '79. They just didn't use it. And then James Cameron took the idea and utilised it quite extensively in the second film, which is the idea that the alien, when it captures someone, it puts them up in a wall of gunk and oh. keeps them there and captures them, leading into this idea of like a hive, like they're ants and there's a queen ant. That scene is in the director's cut and it was cut. But so when you get to the second film, you see that it's like it's all new. And I like that they've added it back because it sort of teases that there's more to this creature than we're letting on and you don't discover it until James Cameron's excellent sequel, which is called Aliens, which was released 86, I think. Um, so a little way, little while after the first film. Um, anyway, that's, that's my little thing on the director's cut. There's a little extra scene in there, which is oh, quite fun. Okay. Yeah. I'm done. I can tell that. This has been lovely, though. Thanks, wow. guys. So I've really enjoyed this. I'd like to maybe afterwards. I'd like to have. I'd like to know how were the eggs there in the first place. Ah, well. Oh, this I have to talk about Prometheus and Covenant. Oh, please do. Uh, I love. Yeah. If you got to this point of the podcast and you do like to uh, wrap things up, who knows what's going to happen? I don't know. Matthew, continue. <laughs> I'm just trying to think about being succinct because I'm aware that normal people, people who don't go and see the new Bond film three times in the first two days of it being released, are probably quite bored at this point. That was specific. He's it was because I'm proud of it. Um, <laughs> He's preparing. It's like watching a. It's like pulling back on a plunger on a pinball machine. It's like watching Zach Galifianakis uh, count cards in the hangover. <laughs> <laughs> I I don't think I can do this succinctly without giving you the entire plots of Prometheus, Alien Covenant. All I want to um, know is why the eggs are on the planet and they just happened to hatch at that time. So well, well, they hatch when they sense that there's a viable host near them. Okay. So you will see that John Hurt stupidly touches the egg and it reacts to his touch. It makes a sound mm -hmm. and that's when it opens up because it senses Okay, and the eggs are already there. How? Because, short version, the, the space jockey, the alien in the big chair that they see on that spaceship is part of a, a, a species of aliens that we humans in, in universe call the engineers and they manufacture all different kinds of weapons of mass destruction. Long story short, there's a bit of meddling with some other androids along the way, but this is the result of a lot of genetic experimenting trying to make the perfect organism, which is what Ash the android calls it because he's obviously already been told, by the way, let us not forget that Ash the android somehow knew that this thing was going to be there before they got there, which means the company Wayland already knew it was there and they were in on it the whole time. So who, how did they know that? How did they know that? No, so, Steve, I'm interested. How did they know that? Because of events that happen in Prometheus and Covenant with an android called David who's doing a lot of very naughty things. And so they genetically engineer Steve, these things. And as a result, 
these things exist and there are different versions of them and this version in this film is different to versions we see in other films because it depends on what level of experimentation they're up to. This is a crashed ship, so it crashed many, many years ago. I think they say thousands of years. It's been there for a while. So the and eggs have been there for thousands the of years? The eggs have been there probably for thousands of years, but this is the same thing that David the Android was working on separately and has clearly told Welling Jutani about and Welling Jutani have been trying to find other examples. These examples are not connected to David, but he's told them that they're out there and they've been looking for them and they found some and that's why Ash is there. And so they go and expe- uh, go and explore crew expendable they just want to get the they just want to get the thing was that rap i believe so so the company knew yes it's it's implied that the company already knew it was there they'd been tipped off that there was something there that, that the crash had occurred the engineers had crashed yeah well they, not, yeah they knew that there was something on this planet they should go they didn't really know much else about it but what has happened is that the engineers had crashed they were working on making these organisms yes yeah, that's right because they just feel like making them because because they can yeah they made us is what's implied in well they did make us in Prometheus and and and, <laughs> and 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 so the eggs are just been hanging out. Yeah, so they can lie dormant for for well, clearly for thousands of years, as we see in this film, until a host comes along. Mm. Do we know why the ship crashed? Uh, well, the pilot, the alien in the in the chair, has see. his has his chest burst open, so it's like he had one inside him. He's died. He's crashed his ship, and the rest is history. Uh, what happened to that xenomorph that crashed? I suppose it would have scuttled off. I guess if it didn't have any food, I don't really know what they're. If they need food, they probably don't. But I guess it ran off and died. It would only have been one. Okay. In fact, if they live long enough, they should turn into a queen. So maybe that one burst, there were none on the ship, and that queen laid all the eggs, and the queen died, and those eggs left. Maybe that's another theory. At what point does this podcast stop being a podcast and an audio (laughs) book of Xenopedia? Xenopedia. Yeah. We've been in the trailer podcast. You can. <laughs> you did this to yourselves. We did. We knew what we were doing. We put a coin in the machine and it, and it just started clapping. <laughs> what? What? Out of five watts are we going to give this? I think it should be flamethrowers. Flamethrowers. I think because that motion is, detectors. Oh, that's another good. I was, I was just thinking of things that were synonymous with this franchise. It's flamethrowers or motion trackers. Yeah, space panties. <laughs> Motion trackers. Okay, out of five motion trackers, Steve, would you like to go first? Well, it's 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 five. Good uh, to hear. I mean, yeah, I always enjoy watching this film. I don't feel the jump scares anymore, but it's still a really, really good sci-fi flick. Just got enough sprinklings of little lore here and there to keep it nice and interesting, you know. It's, it's one of those rare horror films where nothing is contrived, where a lot of this... Uh, a lot of the plot, no, actually, if you really wanted to pick apart this plot, you'd go, oh, yeah, why they enter an alien ship on an alien planet without proper protocols, why they bring it back in a ship, all that sort of stuff. But, no, it's, it's, a, it's a perfect film. Perfect organism. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll just go five as well to prevent any damage to my person <laughs> on the part of Matthew. <laughs> no, no, I wouldn't, and, I wouldn't and, judge. And Put down those... the knife. <laughs> <laughs> Put down the flamethrower, Matthew. Uh, Matthew. Uh, yeah, no, it's a one for me. No, it's a five, um, obviously. Um, this was possibly, along with maybe Gladiator, the f- first Ridley Scott film I saw, which for me is obviously of significance because he's my favourite filmmaker. And I still love that whenever I go back through his movies, this one is still the one, alongside a couple of others, that really stand out still. Like, I think just what a stellar effort and what a luck of just 
just luck of talent coming together, really, that this film even happened and is as good as it is. So, yeah, five from me. This is a terrific film. Don't watch the fourth Alien film, Resurrection. It's terrible. I think it's it's good 90s fun. Oh, it, oh no, it's 90s fun, but it's complete opposite of what this movie is. Na- name all the films in the franchise. In, in order? Prometheus, yes. Covenant. No. Oh, no, in release order. In release order. So Alien, Aliens, Alien 3, Alien Resurrection. I'm ignoring AVP. Uh, then AVP 2. AVP doesn't stop. And then there was Prometheus, then Covenant. AVP Requiem. Sorry, yeah, that's what it is. Yeah. So, Home and Away with Aliens is that one. So Prometheus and Covenant all happened before Alien? That's right. They're prequels. Okay. Yeah. Which are very good. We're hoping to get the third one. They're meant to be a trilogy, mm. and we haven't got number three from Ridley yet because of the Disney acquisition of 20th Century Fox slowed him down. No, we're going to get an Alien TV series. Yes, though. we are. Aren't we? we mentioned that a couple of weeks ago, I think, and I'm actually kind of keen for that. With Noah Hawley, who, I, I, I trust um, him. Adapted Fargo for TV. Yeah, and Legion, Fargo, as yes, we discussed. Legion, yes. I trust him because Legion has some pretty... It's got horror in it, that mm-hmm. TV show, so I think he can pull it off. Okay. <laughs> Alex, yeah. you look exhausted. <laughs> I feel like I've been watching a lovely tennis match um, this afternoon, evening, morning, depending whenever you're watching this, mm. listening to this. Mm. Uh, we hope that this has been commute friendly for you or uh, however you listen to our podcast. Mm. And thank you for getting to this far as well, In Yeah, how long um, have we been? We're pushing over 40 minutes. I'm so oh, sorry. And you would have kept going. I would have. I can. Okay. I can. No, 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 no. <laughs> Maybe we can just do a special episode on, on alien appreciation. Please. And, uh, yeah, anyway. But let's. Let, t- t- today is not that episode. Despite as close as we have gotten to that, today is not that episode. <laughs> so if you don't mind, Matthew, that's given it a nice 15 out of 15 for a surprise episode on alien. I, I appreciate the surprise. Mm. I especially enjoyed that a lot more than Rise of Skywalker. Which we were going to talk about. Yeah. We should probably talk if, about it. If people stage. want us to still do Rise of Skywalker, let us yeah. know, I guess. <laughs> I have things I want to say about it. Fair enough. Well, we've been the Trailer Island Podcast. You can find us wherever you find your podcast, Google, Apple, Spotify, Deezer, Amazon, all the the podcast places you can find us. And obviously you have found us because you're listening to us and you're listening to this particular section, but it means you can let other people know. And they'll be like, oh, what thing is the podcast on? Like, it's on everything. (laughs) So there's no excuses for not finding the Trailer Island Podcast. It's a bit aggressive. No, it's just it's just applying facts to a situation. Okay. All right, okay. Um, so just give us a five star rating. No, <laughs> make sure to give us a five star rating and give us a review, subscribe, whatever, blah blah, blah so you never miss an episode of Matt. And you can reach out to us via all the socials: Facebook, email, contact at. Uh, tra- <laughs> I almost said contact at. I don't even know what at trailerisland.com.au. Um. Yeah. The socials. Socials and stuff. The socials, yeah. Instagrams, Twitters and all mm-hmm. that. Um, as always, I've been Alex and I was joined by... Steve Utani. You stole my... Matthew Wayland? <laughs> <laughs> Building better worlds. Are they matched with Tyrell Corbin anyway? There, there is links in Prometheus, yeah. Good night. I'm going to go watch Alien now. Where'd that cat go? Jones! Jonesy! This is a Narrative Network podcast.